Hey, what's up, everybody? Dylan from the Political Podcast here uh, with my co-host, Evan. I'm just going to do a quick intro. Uh, This is Doc Talk. We're talking about uh, everybody's favorite hardcore documentary, American Hardcore. Um, I think uh, this conversation goes a little bit all over the place, but it also stays pretty centralized just because both myself and Evan uh, hadn't watched the film in, in, in quite some time. So, uh, you know, there's discussions of hardcore's parallels to uh, neoliberalism and, of course, it's, it's downright rejections of it. We do make a little bit of a dig uh, kind of at, at a lot of our straight edge friends here uh, in this, um, genuinely not hoping to offend. Uh, again, the point of the podcast is to help uh, everyone uh, actually challenge the subculture we're in in, in a way that is, that, that is healthy. Uh, Evan, anything you want to add about uh, the episode, uh, so some of the notes for, for uh, anybody listening? Sure. It was, um, I think, I think I came at it as, as an English teacher or history teacher would, um, which is to try and uh, take a look at who is the, who's in charge of the narrative, what narrative uh, uh, ideologies and narrative structures are they using to try and drive their uh, philosophies home? what parts of the story are being left out intentionally, um, what principles are being espoused, and um, whose voices aren't being heard and whose are being favored. Um, if, uh, additionally, kind of taking a look at how, where this particular period of um, late 70s, early 80s hardcore fits into the context of being a kind of a antithesis to the punk that preceded it, um, and also asking the question of, um, is the hardcore of this, that era, in fact, dead as so many of the musicians from that period claim it is? Yeah, that's, those are all excellent things to help guide uh, our whopping like three and a half listeners, I think. Um, <laughs> one thing I do want to add in the, in the intro for, for everyone, uh, if you're listening to this, it's because you like podcasts, it's because you like hardcore and uh, potentially you, you, like, you like politics, too. Um, we do talk about, uh, about Kira from, from Black Flag. It's her brief stint in, as the bassist. Uh, we discuss how uh, she's probably one of many people who deserve to have more time in front of the camera for this documentary. But another hardcore podcast that has had her on, did a pretty decent job, is 185 Miles South. Um, so uh, make sure you check that out uh, if you uh, want to actually have the, uh, hear her speak in a little bit more of a, an unedited manner. Also, it might be premature to say this, but if, if listeners have particular topics they would find interesting, um, other than um, let's talk about current hardcore bands that are being talked about on every other podcast, um, um, or you know, have a hardcore musician on and ask them how they got into hardcore. If you've got <laughs> things that you think are underrepresented in conversations about hardcore, particularly that take in a more global um, socio-political perspective of what hardcore is and the place it holds in our world, why it's important, um, that's a lot to ask. But if you have any uh, topic suggestions, please don't hesitate to drop them in the comment on Instagram or something. Yeah, awesome. Well, with that being said, we really hope you all uh, enjoy the episode, and we'll talk to you soon.
Yo, Evan, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Not too bad. Uh, how are you doing this evening? Quite well. Uh, awesome. Well, that... hey, for the for uh, for those listening, uh, welcome to Politicor. I'm Dylan. I'm Evan. And today uh, we're doing a little doc talk. Uh, everybody's favorite hardcore documentary, uh, American Hardcore. Uh, an American classic. Yeah, tr- uh, truly. This is a peak, no echo Facebook group discussion, uh, clickbait. So uh, we're really playing our strengths here. <laughs> so what's been going on up there in Flag? Um, it is too hot to wear anything other than a t-shirt, but it's supposed to snow tomorrow. So pretty much the same as usual. Nice, nice. Yeah, it sounds like not much has changed. Yeah. There, so. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. Talk to me. What's what's new? How you feeling? How you feeling about the episode? I'm feeling good. I'm uh, trying to. I'm I'm thinking that things will come about organically, but there are a bunch of things I feel are worth talking about. Um, that that um, I don't know. It's I. This is I can't remember. This is a, maybe my fourth or fifth time watching the documentary. Um, but looking at it with an eye to having to discuss it, uh, made me notice some things that were just sort of odd because I was approaching it as more, more like I do when I'm talking about books with my students, um, we kind of have to ask questions about why the author chose to do certain things and what was the purpose of that and what's the audience for it. Um, I think it's also worth thinking about the influence this documentary has had on just the public's view of what hardcore is, what hardcore um, history is. uh, And that includes which voices aren't represented in it, um, which voices are primarily focused on. Um, And it's hard, it's like reading a history book, right? There's, there's kind of a dearth of, or a scarcity of hardcore history that's widely consumed out there. Um, And so it's become kind of a textbook for a new generation of hardcore listeners and hardcore musicians. And that means it's influence. It's got kind of a responsibility for the messaging it has there. Um, And uh, it, it made me think more critically about what it's messaging exactly was and how it, how it carried that messaging across. Yeah, that's sure. Uh, it definitely felt similarly. Um, there's more than a couple moments in, in this where I was like, whoa, don't remember that. Uh, <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because uh, for, for those listening, maybe you, know, maybe, maybe you were born late 90s, 2000s. Uh, this came out in 2006. It's based off the Stephen Blush book, American Hardcore. Uh, I'm Which pretty is, sure I I think have Paul Rackman directed it. I can't, I should know it, but I have the blush book in front of me too. And it's interesting that I, I was kind of referring to the blush book as a cross text with the film, but there's not a whole lot there to connect it to the film. The The book is really um, kind of an um, archive um, of interviews and zine uh, clippings and, and concert uh, flyers. Um, so I was thinking, okay, maybe this is going to provide me some extra insight into the film. I don't know that it really did that. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, an interesting takeaway as well because that book is pretty much standard on uh, a lot of people's sh- uh, like shelves or coffee tables. Yeah, it's kind of ironic because, and this is kind of what I'm talking about in terms of the choices that the filmmaker made, um, just because. Um, in terms of who's present and who's not in the narrative. Uh, and the cover of the book is a wasted youth uh, photo. And wasted youth is maybe mentioned once. Uh, and it's probably in reference to just being on a flyer with one of the bands that they're primarily talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, so it's, I mean, in order for it to be as comprehensive as I apparently want it to be, it would have had to be a lot much, much longer, but, um, you know, I don't know if they were kind of influenced by the habit of metal fans to bracket things into a big four. Um, cause it seems like that's what it ended up doing. Right. It had, to, it had to say, okay, we're going to, narrow our focus onto eh, four bands give or take one band right um for for again for anybody who who is listening who was born in the 2000s and rightfully so does not care about 80s hardcore what were the big four that you were seeing so i know the, the big three are easy and then you'll have to help me out with who you decided the fourth one was okay. and that's just because i've arbitrarily decided that this person is bracketing things into a big four um, so minor threat, bad brains, black flag. And then the fourth would either be Chromag's SSD or agnostic front. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty fucking accurate. Uh, I would, I do, I'm, I would lean towards, uh, a- a- SSD, uh, yeah. at least the, the, at least that's certainly the way it's. The way it's it's framed, which is funny because we don't really hear very much from Al or uh, or his partner Nancy in the film. Yeah, who uh, have really both done a great job at archiving the band's history, much much more than than Springer or Chris Foley. Yeah, it's a it was an uh, it was interesting to me that SSD was the focus that it was over Chromags and Agnostic Front. Um, Although the film isn't on YouTube, the deleted scenes are, and um, the deleted scenes have a whole lot more of Harley and John Joseph and right. uh, a lot more uh, agnostic front stuff. Um, it's also got a little bit more of this SSD reunion, um, but SSD as a focus was the only one that kind of, you know, Minor Threat, Brad, Bad Brains, and uh, Black Flag are kind of the obvious choices. So I, I, I think it is interesting that SSD was thrown in. I, I'm happen to be a big fan of SSD, but um, uh, that's kind of a, a little bit of a left field choice if you're going to choose a fourth big one. Uh, yeah, I that was definitely something. Again, like I watched this. I haven't seen this really since I was like a teenager and now that I'm watching it as an adult, you know, I have like multiple agnostic front shirts. I was like, why the fuck didn't they talk more about agnostic front? In this? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think, I don't think Roger's in it at all. No, he's, he's not Vinny and Jimmy G are, are there. Um, and uh, yeah, 
they they have a they you know they get a couple couple statements in but yeah i mean they're mainly in the in the bonus footage and yeah talk about two guys who had some shit to say probably and and really didn't get a chance to yeah and then vice did a agnostic front documentary years later to that focused more on roger if i remember correctly yeah i think i think i know what you're talking about but again i'm not gonna claim to be an expert i'm hardly a hardly a film buff Uh, i could barely get the uh the tech for the podcast to work so (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm we're 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 still working out the kinks there i guess yeah sorry everybody we are uh neanderthals but hey you know what it's like we don't get a we don't get funding from like a a a a pubic hair trimming company so yeah we're still uh, waiting on blue apron to return our calls yeah 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 yeah. um but speaking of neanderthal i'm still kind of waiting on bated breath for this power violence project film to come out. Um, I'm not sure if you were not to take us off track much, but um, there was a lot of hype for a while about this power violence project film that was in the works. Um, I can't remember the women who were making it, but they were interviewing everybody from early power violence days. Um, I have a shirt that was part of their like GoFundMe thing. And then it just fell off the map. So, yeah, I'm, ho- I'm hoping that footage that footage ends up being involved sometime. But I, uh, I do, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I, yeah, I haven't thought about that in a couple of years actually, because I remember being like, oh yeah, this is this is right up my alley. Like, let's, I can't wait to see the finished product. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. nothing happens. I don't know. Um, it's somewhere, you know. These things take a long time and also take a lot of work, and it's. If people had life stuff get involved, I, I get it. But I hope that they seem to be to have been putting in a lot of work. Uh, so I'm hoping that that sees the light of day. I'm just thinking about it because I'm moving and getting rid of a ton of shirts. And I found my Power Violence Project shirt and uh, had me pining for what might have been. Yeah, yeah, that would uh, that'd be a, that, that would make our Doc Talk series. Uh, no, no questions asked. Yeah. Uh, I guess with, with that in mind, where where do you want to where do you want to start with this? Because uh, again, for anyone who's seen the film or maybe hasn't seen it in a while, there is just uh, whew, God. There's a ton. There's a ton of shit in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting. I feel like the film has already dated itself um, because in rewatching it, because like you, I watched it around high school and it became a real education for me. And that's why it was kind of a responsibility, I think, for the filmmakers to recognize that they had a messaging that they had to be responsible for. Um, And I I mean, it was clearly a huge undertaking. And I think it was it it accomplished something in terms of uh, becoming kind of hardcore 101 for younger people. Um, One of my major questions in looking back at it is, you know, from a structural standpoint, I don't know what the organization of the film is, right? It's not chronological. It's not compare and contrast. It's not cause and effect. I don't know. If it is chronological, it starts by saying, here's the history of like minor threat, bad brains and black flag. And then it goes like 30 minutes into here's before black flag minor threat and bad brains and then shows us essentially the same narrative it already did 
So it's like you got a, it was, it would be as if you had an essay where your introductory paragraph, uh, let's say five paragraph essay, where your introductory paragraph took up a third of your essay. Um, and that was puzzling to me um, because it felt like I was looking at things like, um, I thought like I must have had, you know, when you have a DVD on kind of random, that's what it felt like. Yeah, that that's, that is a good point. Um, it just seemed like it was definitely kind of all just thrown together is definitely the wrong word because uh, I, I want to be clear The I actually really enjoyed rewatching it. Um, it was just difficult at times because you're just like, okay, like now we're on black flag. Um, and then like, it just goes on, you know, the Southern California parts are very, very long. And then when we get to other regions of the country, you're just kind of like, wait, wait a second. You know, like we were texting, I mean, what poison ideas mentioned, <laughs> like, like I don't for, know. for half a second. They, I think. They, they, they're on the map of the United States for, for being like, here's Portland and here's a band that's important. Um, and maybe there was a concert footage or a concert photo of them or like a publicity photo, but even that might've been in the deleted scenes. Yeah, Poison Ideas barely in there. Even Dead Kennedys is like really, really briefly mentioned. Um, and to be honest, I'm surprised that Jello didn't get involved with this because he never seems to be um, at a loss for words for anything. I'm sure he is pretty good at jumping on any opportunity to, to talk this isn't a criticism. He's just kind of talks for a living. Um, so it's surprising that he wasn't involved. And and so dead Kennedy's are almost not in it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know if that's, they're not hardcore enough or because they're a little bit punky, a little bit melodic. Um, so, I mean, just sort of strange choices. Uh, D Kreutzen is, Again, kind of like Poison Idea, it's on the map of hardcore. Husker Du is on the map, and they it's only ever mentioned if like one of the people interviewing mentions them as like people they were hanging out with at that time. Um, and uh, yeah, I would just be disappointed if I was a member of D. Kreutzen and they brought me in. Probably I drove in or flew in for an interview, and they included you know twenty five seconds of talking to me. Um, yeah, and that's 100% what happened. I mean, and again, for, for, uh, for clarity here for, for, for everyone, uh, there is literally like a 300-page book out on D. Kreutzen. So it's not like this was just a band that didn't have an impact and it was just like an also-ran uh, for, for 80s hardcore. Um, there, there, was, there was some shit that could have been uh, elaborated on. No, no question. Honorable mentions here that I think are really at least were much more central like the Minutemen, right they they spend some time hanging out in alan watts van, or mike watts van um but don't spend a lot of time talking about Minutemen unless he's providing some insight into what their tours were doing at the time uh but it's really him talking about hanging out with black flag uh or somebody right. like that um because he's become kind of an elder statesman who's transcended his band right um, he's one of a handful of musicians from that era who people 
might know even if they don't know his band right people know henry rollins without knowing about black flag a lot of people know about keith morris without knowing about black flag or circle jerks or off um and and mike watts kind of like that too just because um, among bass players he's kind of a saint so um totally um but tsol has a bit of a I was kind of surprised to see TSOL and MDC featured as heavily as they were. I was really surprised to see Flipper in there. Um, just because Flipper is, if they're being picky about what they define as hardcore, Flipper's really on the kind of um, outskirts or on a few standard deviations away from what they seem to be defining as hardcore. Uh, yeah, one 100%. Um the some of the flipper footage is uh, especially the end of the film is just downright like just eye roll mm. uh especially when uh the vocalist whose name is escaping me at this moment declares that punk is dead again this was in 2006 only i do want to get to this yes that's only gonna for be flipper to go on to the band's <laughs> warp tour like for like the whole tour in 2009 <laughs> i want i think i remember they at least did the pomona date so it's like kind of like okay <laughs> <laughs> I do want to talk about that though, because it seems like there's essentially unanimity among of opinion among the people interviewed that hardcore is over, um, which is, you know, of people who are qualified to say it, I guess they're the ones, but um, I don't know that anybody uh, alive now who's playing music would agree with that. And unless, you know, the, the people who were in the film. Yeah. And I think again, 2006 is completely different uh, landscape. The internet age really hadn't taken hold yet. So there's some choice words all throughout this documentary that uh, none of us would use today, but at the time were very, very common. Um, and uh, I also think that um, a lot of these guys interviewed couldn't predict uh the the internet age and its impact uh in terms of some of their bands getting uh hardly a second chance more like a third or a fourth one uh but nonetheless a third or a fourth one none, nonetheless to to play again and, and a lot have yeah uh ssd very recently uh <laughs> <laughs> oh you're going there <laughs> i don't know if i'll go there but but um that's sort of consistent with what you're saying about um, there are things on this documentary that, and th I'm not, this is not me saying that anything there's that cancel culture ruins everything. Uh, but there are definitely quotes from this that would have been excised from a more recent documentary for the sake of the artist. Oh, um, dude. Yeah. Yeah. There's one person in particular in there who I know is, truly a, a good dude i've played shows with him he's good friends with a lot of people that uh i consider to be good friends and he's got a quote in there i'm just like oh my fucking god who let this get in there um yeah. so. and who didn't leave it on the cutting room floor or just say hey you want to do another take you know <laughs> because this isn't going to age well um but it's interesting because it seems to me like I'll just jump into one of the other things I was going to talk about is like, it seems to me that there's a lot of kind of brushing under the carpet um, of 
certain aspects of that era of hardcore uh, while glamorizing other aspects. And that seems to have been a choice on the, on the, on the part of the filmmaker, um, especially and most obviously to me, there's this kind of hush, hush, whispered tones, um, kind of winking at the audience um, about HR's behavior um, and about how, you know, we kept getting cut up from gigs and we kept, you know, um, losing relationships with other bands, you know, because of HR's, you know, unpredictable behavior. Uh, without mentioning some fairly uh, well-documented issues of homophobic violence or at least like vocal homophobia that sometimes manifest as violence most um most well known i think would be with an incident with the big boys um it sounds to me just based on things that i've read that most of bad brains have kind of um uh, flogged themselves for that period of their life um and made amends and with big boys and kind of said, okay, we, we've clearly learned from that HR being the standout who hasn't. Um, but it's just strange that you would have people dropping F-bomb slurs in their interviews as if it's nothing. Um, and then kind of uh, sh put a sheen on this aspect of punk culture from that time, which was somewhat somewhat rampant homophobia particularly in one of the figures who is most deified in this documentary oh okay interesting take there i uh yeah i mean with the, the i think uh to add to everything that you're saying the element of how we're like wow this really uh, isn't gonna age well um why did they leave some of these things in there? And the, the, the reason for that, um, it, at least a part of it, is all, to a lot of these guys, emphasis on guys, um, the, a, a huge part of being punk, a huge part of being involved in hardcore is to be uh, sometimes provocative just for the sake of being provocative with really no end goal. Um, and I think that, uh, for some of the quotes we're talking about, we're like, why would you, why would you leave that in there? Tell the person it's okay to leave it in there. I think that that was a huge part of it was really trying to show to the viewer, like, this is how, this is how edgy, this is how hard, this is how dangerous, uh, it, it was at during this time, which all of that is definitely true. But, um, uh, I felt like there were better ways to to talk about it and again one thing that i think everyone should know and this is uh discussed now on pretty much every uh, every time this comes up is a lot of these stories are just like hardcore bedtime stories that we all tell each other to like be like yeah wow we're really we're really out of control aren't we when in reality we're just like perfectly in line nine times out of ten so um that was that that part struck me as well like there's just so many things it was like that did not happen you know you know you didn't you did not blow up somebody's garage door while a show, <laughs> while a show was happening no you didn't <laughs> well, it's funny that they have these narratives juxtaposed of 
of Jack Grisham talking about how he brought pipe bombs to a show and blew up somebody's some poor unsuspecting neighbor's garage. And um, uh, I can't remember who who was telling the juxtaposed story, but that just said that he gave him the bomb and kind of showed it to him and didn't actually use it. Um, it was Jack, somebody from middle class. That's right. Yeah. But Jack Grisham, it offers an interesting counterpoint to this um, lack of representation of any of the LGBTQ figures of the scene at the time, right? Jack Grisham and Dave Dichter, um, who both kind of espoused or um, embraced gender bending and like, I'm going to flout masculine gender norms for the sake of fuck you. Um, and yet also being pretty uh, good examples of toxic masculinity. Because um, Dichter was part of that big boys incident with bad brains as well. Um, and Jack Grisham was able to benefit from this, like, I'm wearing a dress. And if you say anything about it, I'm going to kick, I'm going to, you know, kick you in the head. But um, also talking about in the documentary, fairly proudly bragging about digging up graves and raping people, um, which is, I understand was probably just him saying, here is the character he created for himself. 100%. But it's, um, it just kind of demonstrates that this is the narrative of the time that uh, so much of what hardcore seems to be at this point, uh, as in 2022, um, pushing back against is a lot of the stuff that was created by this uh, generation. Um, at some point, I want to talk about how hardcore is and isn't what it was back then. Um, and that's going to have to be part of that. Right. Cause Absolutely. in this, in this, like women are represented in this as uh, people who are filmmakers, photographers, zine editors um, um, for the most part. Right. Um, totally. With. Uh, and, and it, it is, to nobody's surprise, dominated by male voices. Um, but with Kira Ressler, Rossler being a, the only exception to that, I think, um, today it's kind of an antithesis to that and becoming more so, I would say. Um, yeah, I would also agree with that. It's funny, one of my notes literally just says Kira. Yeah. Uh, just because, um, you know, again, we're, we're talking about like, oh, who probably should have uh, had a little bit more time in front of right. the camera? And I'm going <laughs> to go with it's uh, her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and she wasn't represented very well, right? It's like, um, it, it, here is where the author, where the filmmaker made a choice, right? She's, she's in the band for long enough to be a canonical member of the band. But the only thing she's really quoted about is her being not being kind of hesitant or frustrated with or unaccepting of the cover art for Slip It In. Um, 
So yeah. that choice makes it seem like, hey, check out all these like cool, macho, tough, hardcore dudes who are fighting all the time. And of course, the one woman, um, of course, she got upset and left. Right. Because what else would a woman do? Yeah. yeah she, she She's complained about women representation on cover art because that's exactly what they would do because that's our that's how we've kind of uh, branded women are in our minds yeah that is uh that's an excellent takeaway from that it's spot on i got i don't have anything else to add to that if you want to keep going you're free to but that's <laughs> well it's like i tell my kids like if if and if you're reading a poem and there's a single, there's a, you know, you've got couplets, quatrains, tercets, quintets, and, you know, the longer poetic stanzas. And then if you've got a poem where a single line, there's a single line in the poem, uh, separate from other lines um, in its own stanza, that has great significance. So you need to pay attention to that line. And so if, if they're interviewing people for hours um, and they choose to include one or two sentences from them, there's a lot of weight to that sound bite. Um, like De Kreutzen just said, uh, we went to, uh, what was it? We went to Los Angeles and hated it. So we moved to San Francisco. Right. The end of De Kreutzen interview. Yeah. Um, and they sort of missed out on all this cool stuff happening in Los Angeles. And that's why they're not in the, in the, in the documentary anymore. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> it really was like here, We've got this map of the United States where nothing is happening in any of the middle states. Um, everything's in California and Oregon. And everything's on the East Coast. Um, and if you're not in D.C., uh, New York, um, or Los Angeles, we're not going to really spend a whole lot of time on you. Yeah, 100%. Do you want to uh kind of do a brief uh discussion about just the the images in the intro segment opening with uh with with vic bondi of articles of faith who uh i actually think probably had a lot of really good things to say he realistically should have uh been allowed to speak more however this is the complicated part uh if vic bondi was interviewed more i think people would get a false representation of what the actual politics of a lot of these uh, 80s hardcore guys, again, emphasis on guys, uh, was. Because Vic Bondi, fairly progressive, or at least certainly presents that way in the clips that he is a part of. Um, I'm going to let you go ahead and handle that. I didn't have any thoughts on that. The Okay, yeah, awesome. The intro... Um, you know, we set the stage of... It's, you know, it's, it's 1980, Morning in America... Ronald Reagan, the eternal cowboy, is about to uh, uh, take office. And it's, again, it's, you know, it's the dawn of the neoliberal hellscape. We're still trying to na navigate. Um, we're still dealing with the consequences of neoliberalism. We live in it every single day. The emphasis on, uh, on the individual, the emphasis on deregulation of industry, the emphasis that the marketplace will provide all of the solutions to pretty much every single problem that we cannot possibly buy our way out of um this all starts here hardcore starts as a response to it and uh that deserves some credit in of itself articles of faith being one of the bands that was that chose to be uh political reagan youth with dave insurgent 
flawless shit. If you're going to see Reagan Youth now, I don't know what the fuck is wrong with you. Um, but uh, <laughs> this, uh, again, just so much of the, uh, uh, again, re- reaction to the new neoliberal era, the ways in which um, the desires of hippies and yuppies colliding completely in the 1980s, um, again, fueled everything from from the the drug war to uh, literally right on down to the high gas prices we're experiencing now. And if you remember, there is an oil embargo in the 1980s, which lead to big shock. Everybody uh, not knowing really what to do or how to handle high gas prices at the pump or even downright gasoline shortages. And so the, the mere image uh, of of people still, uh, again, fighting for tr- literally just take your pick of something. Uh, the opening scene, which is only about two seconds that I read way too far into, uh, still mirrors exactly what we are dealing with now. Yeah, and it's that's part of why I thought it was ironic that dead Kennedys weren't involved more. Oh, exactly, dude. And and this is like you've got a generation who's just kind of moved past uh, a disillusioning Carter presidency. Um, this is not too dissimilar to where we find ourselves today, as you stated. Um, you know, here is somebody who is supposed to be moving us in a more compassionate like direction about healthcare about and uh none of that really met its goals uh and then you came with this whip whiplash effect back to the other side or further than it was before um and um so but but the the bands that are chosen are decidedly political only in the very local social sense right so right um they're really talking and granted they're teenagers so how much credit do i need to take away from them for focusing on being <laughs> frustrated with their suburban life instead of the socio-political climate of the country um <laughs> it's not fair for me to do that i understand <laughs> but you know um that's why you've got more obviously intentionally political bands who aren't involved with this that seems to have been that has to have been a choice right um because i guess historically the idea is that the kind of collaboration between minutemen and black flag uh led to what's considered suburbanization of hardcore um and there is a um there's more grace given to minor threat and black flag then to bands who wouldn't be considered suburban um like Cro-Mags who are really as far as I can tell genuinely working class bands talking about that aspect of their lives and so you have what is probably a more marketable frustration uh to a broader audience of people who are frustrated with their suburban lives um, because if that's a broader audience, it makes sense that you would talk about you're frustrated with your high school, you're frustrated with your parents, and you don't want to you don't want a little house in a cul-de-sac like your parents, and you don't want to. Um, this is also at the same time as um, selective service, 
So you've got conscription as a major source of frustration. You don't want to join the military like your dad. Um, so you have this, this favoritism toward the bands who are focusing on a broader message of I'm mad at my parents. I'm don't get fit in at my high school. And you don't have a lot of people who are talking about uh, I'm living in a squat. <laughs> right. You know, and, um, and, even though the bands are choosing to make that their image, right? Like Henry Rollins, a lot of them spent a lot of time talking about how poor they were. Um, but it was a, as a matter of choice, right? For their lifestyle. Um, you've got a bunch of bands at that time who were legitimately more or less from childhood on the streets Um Harley Flanagan was kind of the the only example of it who's featured in there. Um, but I, I guess an audience couldn't relate to that so much. But if you've got a bunch of people who are going to public high schools and are frustrated with that experience, that's something that most people can relate to to a certain degree. Yeah, I also I also want to add, they also emphasize uh, Brian Baker going to a private school, right. uh, by the way, as, as well, which... Um, I thought was uh, interesting because I definitely, I missed that completely in, yeah. in high school because I was also sitting around in the, in the suburbs being like, yeah. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. And it, but it's interesting to, because so much of hardcore seems like it was meant to be a reaction in an antithesis to the punk that preceded it. Right. Because that had become too uh, user friendly. It had become too, um, popular, it had become too polished, it had become too designed, right? Sex Pistols have this reputation of being um, the grittiest and like most dangerous band. I mean, this is to non-hardcore listeners who kind of probably know the real truth, but um, Sex Pistols being this, you know, self-combustion of, of angst from the streets of the UK, um, when they're really kind of a, a industry plant in a way, right? Malcolm McLaren was building an entire fashion industry on the Sex Pistols, right? With the sex store and with uh, this, this punk chic really catching on. So now you have people who are really intentionally not wearing safety pins and really intentionally not wearing torn up shirts uh, and are instead wearing, like Minutemen, a bunch of flannel. Uh, or Black Flag really intentionally just wearing the shirts with, that they wore to work that day. Um, and so there's this antithesis to what had become and may have been from the beginning designer punk. Um, and yet there's a so kind of a dishonesty with themselves about the fact that they too are just kind of teenage suburban nihilists um, who are frustrated with what in many what we would now call first world problems um it's yeah. now that's fair because that is something that uh, I, I mean those are legitimate complaints but to really have a soapbox um is to ignore you know some of the more global issues that the bands who aren't featured in this that we're talking about right um if you're if you're choosing not to talk about a lot of things that were happening 
in other countries because of what America was doing at this time, and instead just focusing on um, Ian Mackay's decision not to drink, um, that's kind of making a choice about what was important to hardcore and then defining that for a generation or two. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's really fitting that the documentary, uh, again, it focuses on the era of neoliberalism uh, taking over globally. And so the hardcore scene reflects it. You know, DIY is is praised as some sort of uh, uh, truly unique methodology of, of getting your stuff out there, when in reality, I think it actually fits the, the neoliberal uh, worldview much more than we care to admit. You have to do it yourself because you uh, actually don't have any support from any institution that should be backing the arts, for example, because we yeah. slashed that program. Uh, and again, stuff like that starts happening like crazy in, in the 80s. And, and again, and it has not stopped sense and this, yeah. this, the same would go with um your individual choices matter uh right uh you know you can compare straight edge to not having a plastic straw at fucking starbucks okay 0.03 percent of all of them are in the ocean really like that's it like okay why are we doing this um this is not going to actually have an effect because uh, again you know you, you've got the straight edge literally in line with uh uh, the United States government fucking funding the Contras while yeah. bringing massive amounts of cocaine into the country. Well, oh, cool. You put X's on your hands? Like, what? What? This is, it's it's a really strange confluence of hardcore um, philosophy uh, embracing the exact uh, messaging of the United States government <laughs> Reagan era. Right here, you've got just say no happening around the same time that straight edge now i'm i'm straight edge so you know just full disclosure um i recognize that there are uh kind of paradoxes to it but in any case or contradictions but um yeah, yeah. and and um i'm sure that makai would agree with me as, on that plenty but but the timing of it is interesting where in some ways you've got um this mentality of i'm seeing what's happening in my neighborhoods and my my you know cousin od'd and so so i don't want to be swept up in that you know it was a reaction to the the embrace of drug use in the late 60s early 70s oh, throughout the 70s especially during the punk movement uh, especially with the sex pistols uh, there's there's this is that pendulum swing where they're saying okay everything that that every movement has a counter movement um and we're going to take everything that killed punk and dispose of that and kind of keep everything we like um so you even have non-straight edge bands or non what would eventually be retroactively called straight edge bands or proto straight edge bands you know dead kennedys and and black flag have what are considered to be kind of proto straight edge songs um like um tv party and um uh, was it too drunk to fuck and stuff like that um six pack six pack right. um um 
whereas Mackay's really, as he kind of always claims to be doing, just talking about his own life, which is, uh, you know, it's hard to find any fault there or find anything to disagree with. Totally. Um, but it really became co-opted as a lifestyle that he would eventually um, push back on too, because, you know, once it became a movement, which was never his intention, um, just like with guilty of being white. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you're opening up a lot of Then people, <laughs> then people chose to kind of turn it into uh, an us versus them thing um, with kill your local drug dealer and um, you know brass knuckles uh, on your in your pocket and razor blades in your boots. Um, uh, you know, beating people up outside of the club for smoking and stuff like that, which was. Um, which is again in line with the neoliberal order of the use of force to maintain <laughs> the marketplace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just interesting that here's something that's nominally, um, at least presumably, if not nominally, anti government. Um, and so when the government is like, just say no, war on drugs, mandatory minimum sentences, and and then bands are coming out saying, yeah, <laughs> we agree. Yeah. Um, it, which is also a very suburban mentality, right? Speaking as somebody who, you know, most people yeah. probably define as suburban privilege for a number of reasons, straight edge. Um, uh, it is a classist mentality in a lot of ways, right? Who's most affected by drug, drug use? Um, in fact, now the war on drugs has been somewhat reversed because now suddenly the op opioid epidemic means that it's drug use and drug um, uh, addiction and drug death is an equal opportunity uh, problem now. So suddenly uh, mandatory minimum sentences and um, the drug war on drugs is being walked back a little bit because suddenly it's affecting senators' kids. Yeah. Um... Instead of the crack epidemic, which was specifically targeting a very specific population by design um, based on a problem that the government created. Um, as you mentioned earlier with the Nicaraguan Iran-Contra problem. Yeah, again, uh, again, stop, stop the spread of, of, of legitimate socialist and Marxist movements uh, at all costs. And for hardcore <laughs> again everything from gangrene's kilokami which might have been kind of like an, an ironic song uh, and gangrene itself is like kind of clowned in this documentary right they're like look how far they've fallen once they started playing essentially hair metal uh yeah which i mean like again like they actually have some like pretty cool songs but um again at the same time like just kind of keeping the conversation centered here so many of these hardcore bands uh, whether they knew it or not at the time, their rhetoric uh, actually did mirror the established uh, uh, political thought of, of the time. Uh, it's been, and sometimes even the, the, the social one um, as well. A lot of pull, us up, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps mentality. 100%, yeah. The, <laughs> pure Horatio Alger, as they'd say. Well, the irony is that the suburban aspect of so many of these bands means that so many of the problems that they were experiencing in terms of um, of like socioeconomic hardship 
were chosen problems, not systemic problems, not uh, problems in which, into which they were born, right? It's fine to be mad at your parents. It's fine to feel like you don't fit in at school. These are somewhat universal problems, but they're not problems over which you can't, uh, from which you can't transcend, right? So if Henry Rollins is saying, oh, they get so mad at me, I have a complicated relationship with Henry Rollins and I'm not trying to like bash him too much. Um, but if, if he's talking about, oh, you know, we could only afford like a candy bar every two days. Um, you all came from the suburbs, right? This is a choice that you all made when you started touring and deciding that you were going to live in the studio and, and live on the road. Um, and that's an, I think an honorable choice, but then to romanticize it, um, for the sake of building a legend around your band, when you probably could have just called home and asked for them to write you a check, um, is somewhat disingenuous. And I, I can't speak for all of them, no, but, no. but the whole point of it was that here are some bands who never got their due because they didn't have the resources that these bands had. And so to glamorize your band or romanticize your band by saying, oh, you know, we really, all we had to get by was, you know, was you know whatever we had in our gas tank to the next show um sure hmm, maybe um i can't i don't have any any real a whole lot of stuff to back to back up a um disagreement with that but you know the, they were coming from relatively privileged situations and the bands who weren't aren't in the documentary Yes. Uh, or if they are, it's, it's only for like a, like a second. Right. Um, and again, you know, to end, I guess to, to, to be fair, you know, <laughs> I think uh, everybody at this point is sick of hearing about the, the, the Cro-Mags. Um, and they, they certainly get their due, unfortunately not in this documentary um, because yeah. uh, that was definitely an interesting time to hear both of them speak. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, 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 they do finally get get their due i think they're kind of painted as the bad guys particularly yeah. harley yeah which i mean again, harley himself doesn't do a great job of making himself look like a good guy i don't think um, he wants to be looked like at, at at a good guy i don't think that's ever been his thing yeah but he just i mean love him or hate him i don't know that i'm a big fan of his you know i've never met him can't really speak to it but sure um he came off as much more even if he was talking about the exploits of Chrome mags in terms of fighting people at shows in sort of a glorious and self-aggrandizing way, um, it came off as more genuine than some of the California bands, uh, some of the DC bands who were talking about um, how hard it was to come from the sub New York and have people be mad at them for, having you know clothes in a van that were clean yeah definitely no totally yeah, yeah. which is exactly in many ways the thesis to guilty of being white which i um, i feel like we had to circle back to um, but, honestly let's just do it now because we're we're rambling we've already made a bunch of straight edge people mad um so, <laughs> like the natural order of this is to now talk about guilty of being white because yeah. i like there's uh yeah well yeah, go, go off, King. <laughs> well, I mean, 
here is sort of a, a, a person talking about, he, he's clearly defending his song. Oh, but, yeah. Um, clearly, the song was written by a guy when he was in, you know, 16 or 17, um, frustrated about being in the ethnic minority of his small school population, right? So he was one of the few white kids at his school in D.C. That was frustrating to him. Um, he was singing a song about how um, he feels ostracized. He feels blamed for things he didn't do. He feels like people already judge him when he walks into the room. Uh, and he says it's an anti-racist song. Yeah. And, how, and his, his more or less quote is, <laughs> how is I to know that some neo-Nazi in Pol Poland was going to like take this song and say thank you for finally speaking for the white man? Um, it, it, and so he, he, when he starts talking about that song, he's kind of defending himself and going, setting the record straight on a song that's been misused now that it's out in, in the public. Um, and one can only imagine his frustration as presumably a non-racist or anti-racist person having his words twisted to other people's purposes. Um, but I don't know that he was very reflective about kind of the inherent problem in his lyrics. He didn't say, you know, I was young and didn't have a more global view of things. I didn't was young and didn't have, you know, a view of what the difference of like uh, individual or or small scale racism is versus systemic racism. Um, I didn't realize that. You know, having being in a privileged but minority privileged population who is a minority locally uh, doesn't mean I don't have privilege. Uh, and instead, he essentially says he, he puts himself in the position of what a, a black person would be experiencing in a predominantly white institution, which is not it's not a just it's not a find and replace. Right. You don't put a white person into a predominantly black school and suddenly they're experiencing systemic racism. Um, I don't I don't discount any of his experiences as a high schooler, as one of the few people who looks like him at his school. Um, but it would have been nice to have him say, you know, I was young and that I would have had a different view of things had I gone back and looked at it differently. Not to mention that if his um he has to also recognize that he has a responsibility for the lyrics he writes and once they're out there if they're being misinterpreted he can't really put the genie back in the bottle right and and say everybody who's using these lyrics because they happen to fit your purposes like i'm amazed that i haven't heard guilty of being white at some alt-right rally though i haven't been to any but I haven't seen like proud boys going like, yeah, Ian McKay is one of us. Yeah. Um, but it's, I don't know if you know this, but Ray Bradbury, um, Fahrenheit 451, you know it. Yes. I, I, I do. I okay. Do. For, Fahrenheit 451 is about book burning and therefore it's about what? Every English teacher would tell you that that's, that the book is an anti-censorship book, right? Every English teacher you've ever had, every English teacher probably ever. However, Bradbury, till his death, was saying it's not about censorship. It's about TV. It's about TV is rotting your brain. 
and it's taking away from time you should be spending books, spending reading books. It was an anti-technology book. It was anti-television because it was considered an inferior uh, media source to him. Um, but he really doesn't get a say in what that song, what that book is about anymore. No. Right. It's part of the public domain. I'm, not literally, but it's part of the public um, sphere. Uh, it's become an allegory even for people who don't haven't read it for censorship. Um, the right who want to ban Harry Potter um, are are using it just or Dixie Chicks or whatever are using it just you know the anti cancel culture people who wanted to kill the Dixie Chicks. Um, oh yeah, that was a, yeah. That I, I can't <laughs> believe you just uh, brought that one up. That's <laughs> the Dixie Chicks are more punk than almost anybody we're talking about. Um, uh, yeah, one hundred one hundred percent, especially but, in this movie. Yeah, but. Um, having uh makai go back and say that's not what the song is about you have a whole bunch of people who have decided to take that song and make it about something and you don't always have a whole lot of say in that anymore and they're going to say ian makai said it's not about that yeah well it is um yeah no no um trust me i, I watched that clip and i just because like um again you know we talk about hardcore hardcore bedtime stories and um Ian's certainly someone who um, is is revered as almost being like, oh, like, like you know, like the same way like liberals view like every time Jon Stewart makes like an appearance on like a fucking TV show and they're just like, he'll set the record straight. Finally, finally, a rational voice in the room, you know, um, I feel like uh, Ian has, whether he wants it or not, has uh, really inherited that mantra and um, that that clip uh you know we weren't there i don't know i don't know what bonus footage from that conversation got axed but like you mentioned uh they chose to pretty much only keep a small snippet of that conversation um which i felt like again if you're just going to spend all this time on minor threat uh you probably could have could have showed some other other elements of it unless um, it's consistent with the filmmakers rhetoric choices you know right which is more and more i'm seeing that that's probably the case right uh -huh. um if he's sweeping homophobia under the carpet he can sweep you know kind of say yeah punk was never racist um because that's the narrative he's creating um where there's kind of a glossy sheen on everything where it's cool to fight fight people who aren't from your neighborhood it's cool to fight people because you know, whatever, but uh, we don't talk about punks versus skins. We don't talk about that major riff. We don't talk about punk Seriously. versus metal. We don't, you know, so punk is, um, it's like, this goes back to the conclusion that hardcore is dead, right? Because this is like an elegy or um, it's like we're at a, a wake for hardcore and we can't talk about any of the bad parts of it. Yeah. Right, you wait till you're in the car driving home from the funeral. Talked about talk, talk about the bad parts. In this one, we're like, you know, it sure was a crazy time, uh, but we all got along, and nobody had any systemic prejudicial issues. Um, Dude, yes, I can't tell you. I I, uh, I I watched the film with someone who does not care about hardcore at, at all, which is always an awesome experience to put somebody through some shit like this. Um, and I can't tell you, I cannot tell you how many times a certain person 
uh, or sorry, multiple, multiple people interviewed whenever they would come on screen in my head. I'm just like anti-vaxxer COVID denier. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, but voted for trump i mean we've literally got dave smalley on there the founder of the punk rock conservative movement being interviewed yeah uh it's just like i'm like again like dave smalley was not the only person where i was like mm, like like every time they popped up on screen there there were multiple there were multiple people i'm just like you gotta be fucking kidding me like uh but again it's 2006 you know, 2020 hadn't, uh, uh, nobody knew that that was going to expose everyone's like just horrible thoughts about, um, politics society, culture, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so on and so on as, as Zizek would say. Um, well, this is the interesting thing is that we find ourselves in some ways where they found themselves, uh, in, in terms of reacting to the, the previous punk movement. Right. Um, yeah. Johnny Ramone uh, was <laughs> for Reagan and has continued to be, you know, Johnny's got his list of 10 favorite Republican politicians out there and Nixon and Reagan are on there. Um, of course. And, and um, so you've got a bunch of hardcore musicians who believe that punk has lost its way or abandoned its beliefs, although it was essentially nihilistic to begin with. Um, and now you've got us seeing these kind of aging hardcore rockers uh, who are doing what many people do as they grow older um, is is kind of shift politically, yeah. um, usually in a specific particular direction. Um, I mean, Johnny Rotten is who who can even know if he's ever being serious, but he's one of the loudest Trump supporters out there. Um, but uh, a lot of the people on this documentary, yeah, um, wouldn't be to any youths doing what they did when they were young, um, I'm sure that they would find problems with it, um, which they're allowed to do because they said a hardcore is dead. It's not coming back. And so now they can look at any bands who are calling themselves hardcore today and say, these kids is just wayward. You Last thing you heard me say. <laughs> you stopped with uh, how these are like, uh, oh, because we can now say that hardcore is dead. Uh, any uh, legitimate expression of it can be easily dismissed. Was kind of where we where 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 we stopped. But that's okay. This is a good time to kind of recenter and uh, kind of see which avenue we wanna we wanna go down next. Yeah, I just think that. Uh, I think maybe that would be a good place. That was where I was thinking about closing before talking about my underrated band um, was uh, uh, who gets to decide if hardcore is dead. Um, even if it's just being made by wayward youths without principles, apparently. Yeah. Because, because to me, hardcore is, I mean, hardcore as I define it, which is m more vague than they define it, apparently. Um is bigger than it ever it has been in my lifetime oh dude yeah it's uh i mean yeah it's a, it's, again so many of of those guys in the that last scene where they're like it's dead like literally years like the, like the next couple years all their bands did did warp tour when kevin lyman made sure the old school punk stage what was there um at a minimum at least for the southern california dates um, I mean, what the circle jerks uh, are are selling out 
like pretty much every venue on their reunion tour right now. Mm-hmm. And, and Xander Slosh uh, is uh, in the end of the film. It's like, everybody go home. It's dead, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've seen any footage of the of the Circle Jerks reunion, uh, the drummer's the only one moving. And that's literally because he has to. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I... There it is. It's interesting. I saw yeah. Keith Morris with Off a few years ago, and he was kind of lecturing the crowd and what punk is and what it isn't. Yep. And nobody was hearing it, right? He lost them within the first five minutes because what a strange thing. I guess he, as somebody who helped to define hardcore, um, he feels licensed to, to as a to, to, to tell people what it is and what it isn't, but it's so strange to enumerate the rules of hardcore or the rules of punk as generally it's the form that is intentionally contrarian, intentionally anti-regulation. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I've, I've literally seen him uh get on stage and say i i've been hearing a lot about punk ethics lately he's like what are punk ethics and then they like start playing and uh man it's it's a a little bit of a little bit of a big eye roll because it's just like you know it just goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning like say had had vic bondi of articles of faith done the majority of the talking in this documentary i actually think that anybody watching it would walk away with a uh false sense of what uh, 80s hardcore was actually capable of politically yeah 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 and uh it was interesting because he was lecturing our crowd on moshing too hard um uh he was like you don't hurt people and as far as i could tell nobody was getting hurt it was just a closed space with a lot of moshing but it was i guess newer school moshing than he was accustomed with and he was so he actually I think feel like a fair number of people left after he gave his little lecture. I like the show. I'd go see him again, but um, it was just interesting because to me maybe the the hardcore if if we were to take this um, documentary as you know Bible, um, then the ethics of hardcore are really specific, really very much about personal responsibility and here's the neoliberalism you were talking about personal responsibility and um uh diy and uh, i guess that might be it um whereas to me a lot of the ethics of the time and especially now are more global are more about power structures or more about historically disenfranchised people and and finding ways to empower them and include them, um, uplifting people who need it. Um, and I think that there were plenty of bands doing that at the time, but whose voices aren't being featured in this. Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. Um, big shock, I agree with you. Um, so so, so if like the punk before this period was nihilistic, um, this one is... I don't know. Is it nihilistic? Is it selfish? Uh, is it conservative? Because the punk that I'm experiencing these days is is f- far more legitimately anarchistic, uh, more leg- more legitimately socialistic. 
um, than these other ones who liked the kind of uh, uh, kind of memorabilia or the, the kind of emblems of anarchy. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I don't know if I actually buy that one one hundred percent, but mm -hmm. I do. I do agree with you to a point. Um, the point where we disagree is actually an entirely separate episode that we're <laughs> that we would that we are already planning on doing. But I I, I would still argue that uh, the, our entire subculture is facilitated by tech oligarchs on like four fucking platforms. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, again, all in the name of you know DIY ethic. Uh, what is what is DIY about putting your show's flyer on your Instagram story? That's yeah. a good point because you know DIY is still primarily um, an ethos that I think is espoused or at least um, publicly espoused by most bands. Um, but it's it's DIY just looks different now when instead of calling a venue seven states away or mailing them, to see if you can plan a tour or you can shoot a face Facebook message or uh, email them. Um, putting up your album art on Instagram is far different from, you know, doing what they were doing with circle jerks and, and discord, uh, which is like cutting out pieces of paper and making your album sleeve out of an eight by 10 inch piece of paper. Um, but the, I think, I, I would probably side with the fact that that ethos is still alive and well. It just looks different. Yeah, and I think that you know, I I, I just I think the look of it and like basically like who literally like has control over the the platforms we have to use is what rubs myself and obviously countless others um, the wrong way, especially in a time where unlike unlike uh, uh, the '80s hardcore boom, you know the 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 constant myth. There's just no money. There's just no money in in doing music, you know, I mean, what Spotify is, is worth billions. There's clearly mm -hmm. money in people right. um, doing music. And like we already talked about, uh, hardcore, it has more eyes on it now than than ever. You know, we got fucking we got bands out here that got like, you know, four thousand dollar guarantees a night um, that are hardcore bands, some even more, um, which they wholeheartedly deserve. The the thing that is 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 troubling <laughs> is uh, it, the new version of DIY pretty much only exists because the very tech platforms that claim it's easy and everyone should be doing DIY don't adequately compensate anyone on said platform. Yeah. Well, I guess in some ways, then not a whole lot has changed from the, the sort of suburban mentality I was critiquing earlier, where yeah, you might be doing it all yourself, but you have plenty kind of foundationally to support you in doing that for yourself right um even if it's not like reaching back to mom and dad or aunt and uncle um we just have systems in place platforms in place where everyone's voice is rather easily heard so diy is it, it's still a an ethos but it's e an easier to uh, it's an easier ethos to practice uh, or live by than it ever has been before yeah um but probably harder to profit from than possibly ever yeah i mean there is one thing that's uh, again the uh the the stark contrast from from american hardcore where they're they're discussing 
how you know you you're literally doing hardcore as a labor of of love um that talking point is still uh, uh weaponized against mm-hmm. bands today to make sure that they get fucking nothing for everything that they go through and everything they do on the I'm, road uh, i'm biased but- here but teachers too i think that <laughs> don't you do this for the love of it is a thing that's used to um uh suppress anybody who feels like they should be rewarded for their hard work in a society that says you should be rewarded for your hard work. If you're not being rewarded, you're not working hard enough. Unless you're working in one of these quote unquote noble professions. Like if you're noble is a nice euphemism for somebody who's not getting paid what they deserve. Um, And uh, is simply doing something that better society, but isn't being rewarded proportionately. Um, Anyway, that's probably sounds like it's for another episode. Uh, yeah, yeah. It sounds like we've got, sounds like we both got some pretty <laughs> repressed feelings. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Can um, we jump into uh, underrated bands? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about. All right, let's let's whew, let's give everybody a break. I feel like we really uh, uh, might have uh, might have overdone it a little bit there. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll get a couple nasty messages for sure for this one, but that's okay. Um, yeah, let's talk about some underrated bands from the era. All right. First of all, um, this band I don't believe is underrated because anybody who knows anything uh, counts them as probably one of their favorite bands, but they're not from one of these um, coastal cities um, that seem to have been the feature of this documentary. But Negative Approach was mentioned maybe once. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hard like not not an underrated band, but really uh, glossed over in this documentary. Yes, one hundred percent. They, I mean, they literally had to uh, claw their way into the I'll call it the respect zone yeah. for the hardcore community. Um, I know what they didn't start actually. Uh, they started like just like touring again later in life. Um, and uh, slowly but surely have, have played, I think, every major hardcore festival the U.S. and Europe uh, offers. So um, There was a huge like gap in the middle of their career, and now it seems like they've, um, they're touring nonstop. Um, yeah. It seems like they're finally getting the, re- the respect that they deserve. Um, I feel like anybody who is anybody in terms of hardcore now counts them as an influence, but, you know, self-titled and tied down came out and then nothing happened in terms of stuff that they're doing until total recall in 92. Um, but I think so much of it is like what else is happening in Detroit? Right. And they're not, they're not part of this circuit that these bands have been talking about in this documentary. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that is that's a that's a good one again hardly underrated uh, actually no. pretty much considered i mean so many so many contemporary hardcore kids who you know didn't have like a punk dad with a good cd collection or whatever yeah. um ha- you know they know who negative approach uh, well yeah i mean know. i and i spent this whole thing kind of crit- criticizing the bands and the filmmaker I'll, i i should just go on record and say i like the film i'll probably watch it again I like all of the bands I talked about, um, but there's not a whole lot to talk about when you just like a thing. Um, 
<laughs> and so I'm I'm not taking a whole. I don't mean to take much away from the quality that they're of their music or the value it's brought to my life but but negative approach i probably like more than all of the bands on the list um and uh and i feel like it was a pretty big oversight not to have them on there but in terms of an actual underrated band um why die from philly um was mentioned i think just once um and um, or spelled YDI. And I'm not sure why. I feel like that's a band who has, it's a band who I don't think a lot of people talk about. Um, but I think that A Place in the Sun is one of the best um, short releases from this period of hardcore. Um, and I, I think it, I guess, is people don't talk about them a whole lot because Black Dust is more well known and is. Um, I think where they kind of took a left turn stylistically and people didn't like it as much. Uh, it's a more metallic album, uh, but a place in the sun really deserves to be up there with a lot of these um, must listen uh, albums and seven inches and EPs from that era. Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, uh, in, in the same, in the same breath, uh, little bit different region ne ne necros as well i felt like uh they're also i think they're actually the clip is back to back um it shows why die and then it shows uh necros um and then you're just kind of like okay and then they're like and back to black flag and you're like uh, mm -hmm. okay um which is crazy because the the net lasting impact of the necros on our culture is uh in, in terms of moving it to a a different direction, a far more, an even more aggressive direction than a lot of people probably could have ever imagined. I'm talking about, the, of course, the <laughs> the cultural phenomenon known as mysterious guy hardcore of the 2000s. Mm -hmm. Sure, the, the Necros are one of the biggest uh, biggest influences for that group of uh, a, a little bundle of, of of bands. It's not always directly, but but it's 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 their big time. Yeah, for sure. I feel like Necros, Neos as well. Yeah. Um, Scream shows up very briefly. Um, and there's a missed opportunity not to have Dave Grohl on your doc documentary, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, big, <laughs> big loss there. <laughs> I mean, he's on everything, so I didn't really miss him. But um, Scream, and it's just my lens, but the fact that Scream and Why Die were barely mentioned and Marginal Man barely mentioned um is part of the kind of image of hardcore being this homogeneously white band with bad brains as the outlier yeah. um and bad brains get this weird magical negro persona in the in this in this documentary oh. where i don't know that anybody needs is going to take anything away from bad brains um you know personal faults aside the music they made is bar none like some of the best hardcore ever um but there's a there there's a choice being made where you're like this is the band with people of color in it <laughs> and it makes it it's the exception that proves the rule of the homogeneity of of hardcore being white men in this documentary uh you know cutting out women and people of color and lgbtq uh music right right 
Can we also talk about while we're on the subject of 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 the the magical element you're speaking of here with the bad brains in mind? Uh, the uh, the clip of HR being like, yeah, you know, everybody wanted to know what you know what we were doing, what we were reading. So it's like, I, you know, I recommended the Bible and of course, uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon yeah. Hill. Yeah, and every and like I, I like had to, I had to pause the movie. I was like, what? How did I miss this when I yeah. saw this in high school? Like, how was I not immediately like, wait, what do you mean you recommended the Bible? And then this weird book that glorifies John D. Rockefeller and Henry Ford, who I think uh, I don't think you have to really know too much about. Uh, 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 what am I trying to say? These are legitimately terrible men who are glorified for for uh, exploitation and and anti-Semitism every step of the way. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, yeah. And. Yeah, it's it was very strange. You would think that, you know, Rollins would then come out talking about Dale Carnegie and how to make friends and influence others, you know. Seriously. Seriously. Which he probably has. I think he'd probably just recommend his own book to people. He was yeah, like, that's hey, you know what you should read? Get in the van. Uh yeah. You know what? Again, I also have a complicated relationship with Rollins because he actually has had a huge and positive uh, impact uh, on my life. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, man. There's, I, I'm not trying to hate on him. He's just easy to kind of joke about. Um, I would like to say that my favorite uh, Henry Rollins um, appearance is um in Def Jam Fight for NY the video game okay <laughs> maybe you don't know it but it's a video game where you play as different rappers who are fighting each other in this sort of street file street fighter Mortal Kombat uh style of fight game and Henry Rollins is the person who teaches you uh how to get buff at the gym oh that's so incredible I I've actually local talent to that game Holy shit, dude! Yeah, I I had no idea. All right, that's your homework. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thank, uh, thanks, Mister Kassler. Uh, <laughs> dude, uh, I mean, my favorite Henry Rollins appearance is uh, just like him as the hockey coach in Jack Frost. Um, <laughs> it's so sick. Uh, just the guy from Black Flag is afraid of a talking snowman, but he like coaches the hockey team. It's this so good. is why I feel like I can kind of poke at him a bit because I feel like he's got a sense of humor about himself. I think I like, he, I like yeah, again, I, I think he does too. There are a lot of these guys in this documentary that uh, happily would take a check to kind of half-assedly do a reunion show, mm -hmm. and Rollins has refused time yeah. and again. He could have made off like a fucking bandit to do, and instead, Greg yeah. is. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, exactly, <laughs> dude. Another episode as well. Oh man, dude. Yeah, too too many. We I mean we got too many uh, political episodes in in the bank. Um, mm. But hey, you know, Spotify needed its new its new bright shining star. So we are here. <laughs> we're here to answer the call. Yeah. All right. Well, we almost doubled the length from the last episode. So I hope people haven't already calibrated to an hour long listening segment. Mm, yeah probably not i don't know I, i'm I'm sure a few people are going to be uh, uh just fucking fuming for the uh the little brief straight edge conversation we have again we mean nothing nothing by it there is value in uh anti-consumptive practices but you know we got to be straight up you're kind of 
you're, you're kind of working with the exact same mindset that a neoliberal capitalist would want you would want you to. Um, and I, that is a hard fact to accept. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm straight edge has worked for me, so I don't have a whole lot to say about it. And it's, it's ways that it is consistent with political philosophies that contradict mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you know what? Uh, and if there's anything else you wanted to touch on briefly, like uh, we can, we can call it there. Yeah, I'm good to call it there. I feel like that was a robust session. Yeah, I'll say so. Well, hey, uh, thank you so much to everyone who's listening. Um, yeah, get at us at the Politicor Podcast. Talk to you soon.